In the year 2020, alongside political polarization, upticks in Black Lives Matter protests, and the spread of COVID-19 cases across the country, online misinformation has been growing at a rapid pace. From claiming election fraud, to supposed COVID-19 cures, to presumably fake culture war spreading, misinformative claims have appeared across multiple mediums, from television to print to different quarters of the World Wide Web, particularly while scrolling through social media. According to a 2020 poll by the social media engagement firm Newswhip, the total number of engagements made while searching through content posted on sites like Facebook and Twitter such as comments, likes, or shares, has grown from a little over 10 million in 2019 to over 70 million in 2020. Because of the consistency in sharing, liking, or even contributing to these and other similar claims, the more we as viewers see or read these claims in full, the more likely that we believe it to be true and less likely to believe otherwise or even acknowledge. And, as we've seen with the insurrection at Capitol Hill in January, can even lead to massive violence. Today, I will be talking with Dr. Megan Gross, Assistant Professor of Communications and Media Studies, about the concepts behind misinformation, what it poses to those reading it, and how we can actively spot false claims while online. I am your host, Olivia Montez, and this is Washington College Weekly. My guest today is Assistant Professor of Communications and Media Studies, Dr. Megan Gross. Dr. Gross, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, it's nice to be here. So first, how would you describe your position and your roles in the Communications and Media Studies Department on the Washington College campus? I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Communication and Media Studies, and right now for the semester, I'm also our interim chair. So describe how you would define or identify misinformation and the misinformation age we find ourselves to be in. So this is a great question. It's also one where I think the terminology is part of the issue that makes it difficult for us to talk about this. We have different groups and different individuals who use terms like misinformation in different ways. And in some cases, mix our understanding of what misinformation means in order to intentionally mislead us. One skull name who's done a really good job, I think, trying to parse out the various terms that we might associate with this is Carolyn Jack. One kind of basic distinction that I think she makes that is useful is the difference between misinformation and disinformation. In this case, misinformation would then be defined as information that has inaccuracies, but ones that are unintentional. Disinformation, on the other hand, is information that is intentionally inaccurate, misleading, or just straight up false. But even within these frameworks, I think there are additional challenges. So it's possible to have fact-based reporting that is misleading, right? It's possible that constructions like 50-50 coverage in journalism doesn't get us to a very accurate description of the situation. And ultimately, objectivity is impossible. And so I think maybe one of the good ways for us to talk about misinformation is to draw a line between sort of good faith and bad faith reporting. Good faith reporting might occasionally result in misinformation, but it's really grounded in good good journalistic practice of fact-finding, of fact-checking. Bad faith reporting, on the other hand, I think is where we see misinformation used to stoke fear, in some cases to bring about violence, and to intentionally mislead people. 
And so I think, you know, we see any number of reasons why misinformation is a really salient concern in this current moment. But it's also worth pointing out that it's not something that's particular to our age. If we look at the kind of history of journalism in the U.S., we have a long period of where the partisan press is sort of common. For some period of time, we also see sort of sensationalized headlines, kind of common practice. There's that very famous example you've probably seen, President Truman holding up the newspaper and it says, Dewey defeats Truman. That was a wrong headline. But that's a situation where I think we can say there was some good faith to do good reporting there. When it became obvious that wasn't true, it's not like the newspaper doubled down and said, no, we still think Dewey won and the presidency of Truman is illegitimate. So there are historically examples where we see these kind of good faith reporting and it still results in misinformation. I say all that and, of course, don't want to diminish the fact that the information landscape that we have today is different than it was in 1948 or at any of these other points in history. And I think for a lot of good reasons, there's a lot of concerns about the way in which information circulates through things like social media. This is a problem that's particular to this kind of moment. And, you know, some of the particular problems of this age of misinformation are distinct, but I also say it's not a totally unique problem to our time. So how does misinformation spread and what is at stake when it gets out of control? So... The things that we've been seeing in the last few years, the information around the 2020 presidential election, the way in which we talked about the COVID-19 pandemic, I think with those two topics, there's actually a lot of ways in which we can further think about this good faith versus bad faith question. Leading up to the election, there are claims that there was voter fraud happening. There wasn't evidence of that. After the election, there were these continued claims that that the election was fraudulent in some way, that there had been some abuses in the election process. There also weren't facts for that. Reporting that is an example of bad faith reporting. Again, stoking of fear, that stoking of mistrusting government, mistrusting elections, and ultimately we can look at the insurrection of the Capitol as a kind of fallout of this. On the other hand, on the faith side of this, there are situations where journalists legitimately don't have or can't get all the information they need to report on something. At some point, I was literally reporting of the pandemic. There was so much that was changing because we just didn't know. And so about a year ago, in the beginning, middle of March, reporters were saying, don't wear masks. The CDC says not to wear masks, don't wear masks. Now we know masks are good for us. That wasn't intentionally misleading us. They were giving us the best information they had at the time, but science changed. And so their reporting changed along with it. With the mass shooting of Asian American people, and particularly Asian American women in Atlanta, we can see the kind of fallout of bad faith misinformation. The months of rhetoric calling COVID the Chinese virus or the Kung flu are directly related to these sort of murders that we're seeing. And obviously, I say months, but years, decades, centuries of misogyny and racism that undergird this kind of political speech have an influence and then are reinforced and recirculated through some of these venues of misinformation. And how has this differed from misinformation spread in the past? The fact that we kind of don't know how to define what social media are is part of our kind of problem with those things. On the one hand, we might think of them as common carriers, right? Like they're just this avenue through which information gets distributed. And in that case, they don't have a lot of responsibility for what we see through those spaces. 
But we can also think of social media as content companies. And in that case, there's a lot more responsibility for the kind of information spread through those spaces. And so I think one of the challenges is particular to this time period is not just that there's so many more avenues through which to consume information, but that we don't quite know how to regulate the spaces where most people are gathering that information. And social media, I think, is a really sort of central point in which we would see that. In terms of specifically both the 2020 presidential election and the COVID-19 pandemic, where misinformation concerning the results of the election and how the virus spreads and who is at fault for its immense toll, respectively, how was public opinion swayed to accept or consider one supposed version of the truth over accurate information, or in some cases, such as the 2021 insurrection at Capitol Hill, to the extreme? So I think it varies. The public is a kind of monolith. We are a lot of different publics who are circulating in a lot of different information landscapes. And that's something we might think of as also particular to this time period that we're living in. The number of resources we can go to to look up information about something are vast. As a result of this, we also tend to see things like confirmation bias being a particular problem, people seeking out information that reinforces their existing beliefs. We can also see people existing in these kind of filter bubbles to keep dropping the catchphrases where they're again speaking to people who tend to agree with them. And so again, the insurrection is one particular moment, but it has its roots through these kind of networks of information circulation that makes people more believe that the government is working against their interests, that elections are able to be stolen, that election fraud is a widespread issue. And so the way in public opinion is swayed over a long period of time, it's not as if one person hears once that an election is stolen storms the Capitol. It's a long-term sort of strategy to foster in the case of misinformation, this kind of mistrust in institutions and in these networks. Aside from politics and healthcare, how else has misinformation impacted aspects of our daily lives? So those two examples are huge and certainly important ones for us to think about misinformation. But again, we want to recognize that this has a longer historical context. But if we stick in a kind of generally contemporary framework, we can think of other examples that might fall into these sort of categories, narratives about minimum wage or about universal health care or other sorts of policy questions. As those debates come up, we see a lot of misunderstanding about those sorts of policies. We might also think about all the misinformation that has circulated for a long time around things like the climate crisis. All these things have a direct impact on people's daily quality of life at the highest levels, like we're talking about with COVID and like we're talking about with the capital insurrection. Some of these matters are life and death. With climate change, we're talking about a real existential level threat. And so it matters if people are allowed to say it's a hoax. It matters if that information is allowed to circulate. And a less extreme level, though, it also matters how we talk about it, even in sort of more trust sources. Climate change is a particular example where the line between that kind of bad faith reporting gets a little bit blurrier. Journalistic practice for a long time, or for some time now at least, has placed a lot of value on the idea of 50-50 coverage. But in the case of climate change, doing that is really misleading. It gives people the sense that the claims that it is false have just as much validity as those saying that it's true and it's something needed to address decades ago, but certainly today. 
And that, again, it has a daily impact on people who are living through various weather crises as a result of this, or getting paid minimum wage and not being able to afford their housing or healthcare and things like that. And so it really does affect people's daily life and this misinformation is allowed to circulate in our kind of everyday discourse. So with all this in mind, how do we combat misinformation? What methods or strategies should be incorporated to challenge what is being spread and how it is being recorded? It's a really good question. It's one that I struggle in some ways, in part because I think one of the things told is that as individuals, we're responsible for fixing this. But what I want us to also understand is that there are big sort of systemic issues at play here. So practically, as individuals, we need ways we can manage and deal with the misinformation that's circulating while also understanding that it's maybe not all our fault if sometimes we're either getting misinformation into our feeds and perhaps even falling for it. But there are some potential strategies some of which might sound sort of obvious. So starting with reputable sources is at least at the outset a way to some of the worst examples of misinformation. So going to a source you recognize as opposed to just like a feed on on Facebook or something like that. Within that, I think it can also be helpful to think about varying sources. And so here I might think about not just having commercial media sources, but having commercial and public media sources that I go to. Similarly, rather than just relying on U.S.-based sources, I might have some U.S. sources and then some outlets that I look at as well. If you see something suspect, you know, we tend to get some sort of sense that we're seeing something wrong, not always, but in some cases. If you can't find that same story on the New York Times website, if you can't find it on the BBC website, don't circulate. If you still do think like this is something that I want to explore more, there are certainly checks we can do beyond that. Look at the sources who are cited in the story. But again, in this situation, I do think that's a lot to ask of individuals to do that with sort of every item that comes across. But if you're going to be sharing around a story, I think it's it's worth a little bit more uh, vigilant about making sure that what you're spreading is actually worth other people's time to look at, uh, isn't going to be misleading them in any kind of way. For a lot of, I think, particularly college-aged people who grew up online, I suspect that there is some sort of sense that something is off. And online, sometimes it's, you know, visual cues. Sometimes it's the kind of advertising you see. Again, if you know the name of the news and point to it, has some sort of physical location, that's at least a start. And you can test yourself in some ways, right? Like the Breitbart website and go to the Washington Post website and see what sort of things you can tell that are different between them. And with social media tech giants such as Facebook and Twitter attempting to restrict or ban misleading content from their sites, what does the future of misinformation and on a larger scale information look like? So the role of social media, like I said, it's one where we see a lot of fluctuation. Again, that difference, like, are you just a carrier of information or are you actually responsible for the content that's appearing on your website? Mark Zuckerberg historically has resisted the idea that Facebook is a content company, that they're somehow responsible for the content posted on it. As a result of blowback, we sometimes see, you can flag this as misinformation, then it'll go through some series of checks by a group of people who had questionable expertise in determining whether or not something was misinformation or not. But for the most part, Facebook is an example where we see they haven't done a lot to resolve the problem. 
And so we're seeing crackdown from other places. Like in the EU, we're seeing regulatory crackdown on a company like Facebook. Twitter, on the other hand, you know, we also see some fluctuation with them. More recently, at least, we're seeing some fluctuation in their approach here, particularly with the notable bans on, on some of their biggest users. These are both private corporations, though. We all agree to terms of service for Twitter and Facebook when we sign up for them. And so I want to note, it's not any kind of violation of our First Amendment if people are banned from there, as some people claim it is. If you're violating the terms of service, you also agree that you can be banned from the website. However, I think it does show that some of the mechanisms that we have for control here are not particularly subtle, right? It's like you either can say whatever you want on Twitter, we can ban you. Certainly there's the flags and there's the labels and there's some of the, I think, again, these are more kind of brief hints at regulation that also have shown themselves to be pretty imperfect. And so I mentioned that there's some of these big questions and one that might take some of individuals do all the work of researching every single news article you read. And in the European Union, we see certain antitrust regulation being levied against Facebook, trying to kind of depower in circulating information. Some other things related to privacy happening in other countries that we haven't taken on but might be kind of useful in thinking about the future of the way we deal with information. Well, Dr. Gross, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Yeah, happy to be here and um, happy to talk about this. In terms of identifying misinformation while online, aside from constantly checking and double-checking reliable sources for key information, it's also recommended that one should be looking through information from different sources through a critical lens, rather than only information that confirms pre-existing beliefs, as well as keeping an open mind towards differing ideals. This has been Washington College Weekly. I'm your host, Olivia Montes, and I will see you next week.